Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about a new category of wine, the better for you, air quotes, wines, or as many of us know it as clean wine. And today, our guest is Eric Siegelbaum, founder and chief innovation officer at Sommelier, which is a leading hospitality agency. He's also an advanced sommelier and 2019's Food and Wine Magazine's Sommelier of the Year. Oh, and I forgot to add, he's a wine writer as well. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of complicated ways to say this guy drinks a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. Our audience is used to that. So I was wondering <laughs> if you could give Peter and myself and our audience a brief overview of your background and life and wine. Obviously, we covered the highlights, but how did you end up where you're at? Well, you know, I used to be a chef and uh, chefs drink a lot. And uh, as my palate developed, I stopped drinking so much for the alcohol and started drinking for the flavor. And I was cooking in fine dining. I was a restaurant chef at a fine dining French restaurant at the Park Hyatt Philadelphia. And so we were a tasting menu restaurant. So the sommelier and I would be working together very closely on menu conceptualization and tasting dishes and tasting wines together. And my love of wine was born. But ultimately, I became a sommelier out of sheer financial utility. I graduated university with crippling student loan debt. And uh, as a chef, I was watching front of the house come in three hours after me, leave three hours before me, and make three times as much as me. And that was an appealing life for a 22 year old recent grad that needed more than $16 an hour. So um, I transferred with Hyatt to a luxury boutique hotel property in South Beach that they were opening, got my intro psalm pin while we were waiting to open, and very quickly realized the more I knew about wine, the more money I made as a server. And so the love affair was born. And then honestly, by circumstance, uh, within about six months of opening, wine director quit, head sommelier was fired. I had the only certification in the building, which I mean, an intro pin is nothing, frankly, no offense to everyone who has it, but that's the like pretest for the test. And so they just threw me in and said, okay, you're running the whole hotel, restaurant, on-site, off-site, catering, everything, figure it out. And that was 18 years ago. And I haven't turned back and I've been pretty happy with the journey. And you founded recently, relatively recently, a consulting company called Sommelier. I think mm-hmm. just to spell it out for people who want to look it up, S-O-M-L-Y-A-Y, not spelled like the word Sommelier. Correct. It's phonetic. Yeah, it's phonetic. What services do you offer at Sommelier? So Sommelier as I like to call it, because you know it's a little bit of that personality there. So I like to quip, I basically do everything related to consumers, journalists, or trade interacting with wine, alcohol, or drinking in general. So my main activities include private events, education. I'm the wine educator for Smithsonian, so I do a monthly class for about four to 700 consumers. I am a wine writer for a number of publications with ongoing columns in trade and press magazines and uh, digital publications. I assist with acquisitions, liquidations, vetting, valuation, and inventory management of private sellers. I do restaurant, country club, and cruise line, and hotel, and wine program builds or rebuilds, profitability analysis, and uh, operational consulting. I really mean it. There's like 30 more things to do. Oh, important distribution, facilitation, and brokerage. So really anything related to any aspect of this industry when it comes to wine and making wine happen, it's basically what I do. So, and the reason why you're on this episode of X Chateau is because in the Tasting Panel magazine, the September-October issue of 2021, you wrote an article called Snake Oil for Sale, The Dirty Business of Clean Wine. And I love the article because it's something that, you know, Peter and I have been talking about quite a bit. And... I reached out to you and I was like, hey, 
I'm curious, did you have more to say than what was written in that article? And your response was like, yeah, I, I had to cut so much out of that article. I was like, great, we should totally do a podcast just about that. But I'd love to dive a little bit into it. And like, what was the impetus for writing that article? And also like, how do you think people should understand or define clean wine? Or how are they defining it? So the impetus for that article was uh, the most common activity of my businesses is, is education. I do, again, I mentioned the Smithsonian events, but I also do private client events. And uh, I've done over 300 since the pandemic started, mostly digital events. And there are a series of questions I'm always asked. I can reliably know that I will be asked a question about this. Number one, sulfites. It's always about sulfites, which, you know, is real close to the line with this whole clean natural wine nonsense. But the second one I get asked almost as commonly is just about the idea of natural wine and clean wine and better, healthy wine and better for you wine. And I love to tell people, first of all, don't take advice from me. I'm not a doctor. Wine is good for you. Alcohol is not. That's where health starts and stops when it comes to wine. So my Facebook feed and Instagram is inundated with advertisements for a litany of different companies that are all using, frankly, manipulative scare box tactics in their marketing to dupe consumers into thinking that their products are somehow or somewhat better than everyone else's and that they're the only ones that care about you. Not that they're for a profit company. No, 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 that's not what it's about. That their special wines are the only special, special thing that you should be especially drinking because they're so special. And everything else is basically rat poison and nuclear radiation and evil corporations and they're all trying to kill you. So buy our wines. But oh, what we really care about is you, not your money. So out of an absolute frustration and exhaustion with the way that consumers are being really manipulatively misled, whether that's by overt or subtle tactics, whether that's lying by omission or inference. I just got fed up with it. And so, you know, Tasting Panel is a consumer publication. So I thought maybe it's time for me to put some pen to paper, figuratively, of course, and let everybody know what's really going on in the natural and clean wine space. So to give clean wine a definition, because you know I don't want to conflate it with natural wine, like, and I think it's important to differentiate the two. And I'm curious on how is it commonly understood what is a clean wine? So here's the first step of where things get really muddy, because clean wine is an invented word. It has no definition with any kind of legal construct. It has no unanimously or industry-widely accepted standards. There's no agreement as to what it means. It's a word that sounds really great, or I guess two words that sound really great because it makes it seem better for you. But the problem is clean wine means whatever you want. I could take the most chemically manipulated commercial industrial wine in the world and I could put one teaspoon of soda water in there. And because soda water can be a cleaning agent, I could say it's clean wine now. There's no definition of it whatsoever. So therefore, step one, the problem is People think, oh, clean, that's healthy for you. It's so good. It's not. I could make up a word right now. I could say, uh, I'm going to borrow from an old season of The Simpsons. It's quijibo wine. Do you don't know what quijibo means? Quijibo, it means it's like so good for you. It's the best thing for you. If your wine is not quijibo you know, recognized, then I won't drink it. It doesn't mean anything, right? So there it is. That's the big problem. So it means nothing, essentially. So, I mean, it's the same kind of issue that natural wine has in terms of the antithesis of those wines is dirty wine or unnatural wine. And I think that's is basically played into in a lot of the marketing is what that we're all inundated with. But what do you think is driving the trend, though? We have celebrity clean wines on the market now, which is like, obviously, we have tons of celebrity wines, but some of those are like legit wines. Some of those are people slapping a name on a bottle. But like we have some major 
celebrities putting out clean wines. I'm curious on what do you think is driving that trend to be so popular these days? Easy. Revenue. <laughs> Marketing revenue. Sales are driving that trend. But no, I get the question that you're really asking. And that is the millennial generation and now coming into it, Gen Z, or I guess some people call them Xennials, which I think the oldest are about 24 now, but it's millennials that have taken over the consumption space when it comes to wine. It's no longer boomers. Boomers plus Gen X combined no longer make up the purchasing power dominance. It used to be boomers. Gen X was never really a factor. But if you add those two together, as of about four or five years ago, millennials took over because elder millennials are in their late 30s. Younger millennials are in their late 20s. They're well-resourced, have disposable income, enjoy categories like wine, and are also a very different mindset of consumer. And of course, I'm generalizing. You know, I'm talking about an entire generation, not individuals here. So if you're a millennial, please don't be offended by what I'm saying if you don't feel this way. But as a generation, they are very concerned with social and environmental and health causes. That's why there has been a massive like exponential growth surge in low alcohol spritzes and cocktails and pre-made canned products and all that stuff. That's because there is this understanding that alcohol is not good for you. Therefore, I'm going to interact with the category, but I want to act, interact with it in as healthy a way as possible. And because of that, companies have invented this fictitious notion of clean wine that, as you indicated, implies that it is antithetical to dirty wine. And if it's not clean wine, it must be dirty wine, right? It's a very Sith absolute way of looking at things. If you're not with me, you're against me, right? No, there's a lot of mid ground there. So ultimately, celebrity or not celebrity, this clean wine movement is based on a desire by the largest purchasing demographic or cohort of wine consumption in the United States to meet their requirements, whether they understand what it means or not. When they hear terms that imply that it's a more healthful or good for you product, whether it is or it isn't, they're going to latch onto that. And that's ultimately at the crux of the whole clean wine movement. Because again, it really has zero definition whatsoever. You could call anything clean wine. So it doesn't have a definition, but a lot of these producers and retailers make a bunch of claims and state facts that purport that are related to their particular wines, like low sulfites, no or low sugar, organic, natural, healthy, keto, whatever. What are some of the facts behind a lot of those statements? Gluten-free, I guess, vegan for some. Sure. So here's where it gets really interesting and what prompted my vitriolic almost tone in my article. But it's because I'm in defense of consumers, not because I'm being challenged on anything. I don't, I'm not a wine producer, right? But I want consumers to just have all the information and make good choices, not make choices based on manipulation or misleading. So the biggest thing that frustrates me about the clean wine movement is that, and Peter, you sort of touched on it just now, you were talking about gluten-free and vegan and, and all this stuff. Most of the claims they make are not false, but they're either misleading purposefully, lying by omission, or creating an implication that everybody else is doing something wrong just because they can. I'll give you an example. It is not illegal in this country to cheat on your spouse. That does not make it right. That does not make it good. That does not mean you should do it. However, if you chose to do it, it wouldn't be illegal. So these like clean wine companies advertise about, oh, do you know there are a hundred and something chemicals that can legally be added to wine? Yes, that is true. Very few producers use them. Usually it's the super industrial brands that are producing an alcoholic beverage drink that happens to classify as wine, but most producers aren't. But when the way that they phrase that makes you feel like everybody's doing it but you. So is it true that yes, you can use these chemicals? Sure. But does it mean that everybody's doing it? No. 
another thing is, you know, this whole gluten-free, vegan, keto, paleo, no sugar added. Well, no sugar added is a whole separate topic we can touch on in a moment, but all those other things, all wines are that, all wines are that. Even if, you know, there are certain elements of winemaking where gluten could factor in. And really the only place that that happens is certain types of barrels might sometimes be sealed with a paste, the barrel heads might sometimes be sealed with a water and flour paste. But that doesn't, that dries, it becomes basically like, that's like saying if you were to to touch a tile, the grout of a tile, you'd basically be absorbing whatever the grout was made of into your skin. It's like, no, it's dry. It, there's no absorption there. It's the same thing with that. So by definition, all wines are gluten-free. The idea of vegan is there are certain agents that can be used for fining, for instance. Fish bladders aren't really used anymore. They used to be a long time ago. That's not even there. But a type of clay that's rich in little microscopic organisms called bentonite or sometimes egg whites. But again, egg whites in wine, it's not like they're whisked into the wine and there's egg in there. It interacts and it touches and then it goes away. It'd be like if you dipped your hand in the barrel and then put on the label, there's no human hands in this wine. Well, yeah, a human hand touched it, but there's no body parts in there. So it's a lot of these, like what they're saying is correct, but it's done in such a way that's misleading and manipulative. So foot trodden wines can't be vegan. <laughs> so, so that was my take. <laughs> I mean, by definition, I don't know. It depends how vegan you are. And if you're so vegan that if a wine interacted with egg whites, by the way, we're talking about an infinitesimal ratio. If Almost nobody uses egg white finding anymore, but we're talking about like parts per million, not parts per dozen, you know? But if it means that at some point, 30 eggs interacted with 10,000 gallons of wine, and that's an issue for you, well, then that's completely fine for you to make that choice. I'm not criticizing anybody's choices, but to imply that it is somehow better for you because it didn't do that is absolute nonsense. So how is this different to other food and consumer good trends like the organic, natural, pure, gluten-free, keto, et cetera, et cetera? Tons of consumer goods have marketing messages and do this. Is this basically the same thing just for the wine industry or is this somehow different? Peter, I'm pleased to report that my betting is gluten-free, keto, and paleo. It's vegan. <laughs> so no, I mean, it's different and it isn't. First of all, let's just get this out of the way. One of the other misconceptions that people have is organic. Friends who are listening, organic does not mean no chemicals. It does not mean that at all. Organic means no synthetic or artificial chemicals. So sulfites, sulfur dioxide, which are preservative that helps protect your wine from mold, yeast, rot, and bacteriological spoilage and tasting like garbage, those are not only organic compounds that form naturally during fermentation, but they are a good thing. There's another manipulation that, oh, no sulfites added is bad or is good. No, no sulfites added is bad. No sulfites added says, we don't care enough about you to make sure this wine doesn't go moldy, rotten, bacteriologically infected, re-ferment, have yeast issues, or that if you buy two bottles that they'll both taste exactly the same. And if, by the way, if you don't like that, it's your fault because that's what it's supposed to taste like. I won't go on the organic soapbox. Organic just simply means no artificial chemicals. So wine can be natural or clean, if you will, with copper sulfate, with sulfur dioxide, with dozens and dozens of organic compounds. So in that regard, there's it's less manipulation there and more misunderstanding by consumers. So I'm going to give the clean wine movement a, a pseudo pass on that. But this idea that because wine is a consumable food stuff, it's really easy to try to associate all these extemporaneous health or healthier related terminology to it where it doesn't really make sense, but people think, oh, I'm consuming it, therefore I've got to focus in on these health things. Yeah, it definitely makes it easier to target a similar audience as well, since they've already blazed that trail with the other health foods. But let's talk about the other spectrum, though. So most of the wines that we're drinking, the three of us on this call, are going to be in the camp that they aren't labeled as clean wine, but they're not 
the spectrum of mass produced commercial wine, thinking like a two buck chuck or apothic and things like that. So I'm curious on let's define the dirty wine or the spectrum. The people who are doing mass manipulation, they're adding stuff. It's not even transparent who those people are, right? Right, because there's no laws requiring labeling of processes or additives. And also, manipulated wines don't just mean chemicals are put in there. There are all sorts of technologies, reverse osmosis, spinning cone, all sorts of technical things that you can do. And I almost think I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to bring it up. Some of the most expensive wines in the world, the most highly prized in the world, first growth Bordeaux's and Grand Cru Burgundy's and stuff, they use some of these processes because it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. You can use a process that de-alcoholizes if there's too much alcohol in a warmer year or a process that adds alcohol. Well, it doesn't add alcohol. It reduces water, so it increases the alcoholic concentration if there wasn't enough alcohol in a cooler year, right? That doesn't mean the wines are inferior. doesn't mean that they're bad. Have they been manipulated? Absolutely, yes, but they're manipulated for good reasons, right? Manipulation in relationships is a bad thing. In wine, it can be a good thing. So number one, this idea that some of the technological advances in wine are bad is absurd to me. We advance as a society with technology in many ways, some good, some bad. I remember not so long ago when I would go on a trip and I would have to have a camera and film and batteries for that camera and a pocket calculator and a currency conversion and a notebook and a phone card and all these other things that now my smartphone does. So it's like, does that mean that my smartphone is worse because it's a technologically advanced thing? No. When we can make the case for screen time and, and social media and all that stuff that maybe distracts. But ultimately, the technology can be good or it can be bad. It's how you use it. So that's number one. But number two, these industrialized brands, and it's really impossible to know, are it's less about the technical processes and more about the additives. And there are some really nasty chemicals out there. One of the more common wine additives is called Velcarin. And Velcarin, if I remember this correctly, you're going to have to fact check me on this, but the last time I checked, Velcarin is so toxic in large quantities that the tankers that carry it have to carry hazmat placards. They can't go through tunnels. And if they crash and there's a spill, they evacuate a square mile. Now that additive gets put into wine to make it fuller bodied. And I don't want to name names, but there are a lot of commercially or consumer popular wines that a lot of people benchmark as, oh, this is a really great wine. It's killing me not to name them, but I want to be polite and respectful that use Velcarin. Now, it's in small quantities. I don't think it's particularly good for you. These are not the kind of wines that I want to drink. There's another, probably the second most common, or maybe even the first most common chemical, it's called Mega Purple, that increases color, but also increases body and stuff like that. These, um, air quoting, unnatural wines, if you will, I really draw the line between commercial scale and industrially produced. And the issue is the industrially produced ones. And those are typically the ones that are on the bottom shelf at your everyday supermarket or 7-Eleven or CVS or Walgreens or whatever. In order to make the wine taste even remotely worth drinking as cheaply as possible, they chemically manipulate. And the best way you can look at industrial versus commercial scale is I like to think about beer. And this is non-disparaging, no matter what you like to drink when it comes to beer. But if you look at Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, right? They have Bud, Bud Light. They've got a couple other brands, but just look at the Budweiser universe. It's Bud and Bud Light and Limerita and whatever, but like, look at the actual beer. Those are produced in six or seven different factories all over the planet, different factories within the US. And that is a, an industrialized product with different inputs that make it taste exactly the same output after output, batch after batch, run after run. That is an industrial product. Then you look at a brewery like Sam Adams. Sam Adams is not a small brewery. Their production is huge and they have a lot of common things, but they do their seasonal. They do their 750 milliliter bottle like triples and double box and Belgian style stuff. And that's, that's somewhat more limited run, but even their large scale production stuff, it's commercial scale, 
but it is not an industrialized manipulated product in the same way of they're going for homogeny. So that's sort of how I draw the line. And the issue is with these industrial drink producers that are producing something that qualifies as wine versus commercial scale, you know, a million cases or whatever, wine producers that are producing wine as best as they can. It just happens to be at a really large scale. Got it. That's an interesting distinction. I like that example with the breweries. It makes sense. So in your article, you mentioned that these clean wine proponents are obscuring transparency. And it's funny because they, it seems like they're promoting transparency, but then you say in the article that they're obscuring it. I'm curious, and what did you mean when you said they obscure transparency? I'm not a thief is exactly what a thief would say. So they obscure transparency by saying things like, oh, other wineries don't tell you where they're made. We tell you where it's made. We're made in Napa Valley. But then you actually look at the back label and look really carefully, and it says produced and bottled in Napa Valley, which doesn't mean the grapes were grown in Napa Valley. It doesn't mean it's Napa Valley fruit. And then you find out that they came from Angola or Croatia or something. And that doesn't mean that those places don't make great wine, but they're saying, oh, we're being transparent. We're transparently telling you where we produce it. We produce it here in Napa. But yes, but you're not telling us where the grapes actually come from, which is not Napa. So there's a perfect example of a very common manipulation. And I don't want to name companies. I desperately want to name companies, but I'm I'm not going to do them that disservice. But the ones that you're always seeing in your Facebook feed, those are the ones, or in Instagram, those are the ones that are the worst offenders of this. There's this concept called white label wines. And a white label wine basically means you buy bulk juice or something called shiners, which are bottles that are filled and corked, but with no label and no brand. You buy them on the cheap. You put your own branded label on there. You can market it as produced and bottled in wherever the heck you have set up and incorporated your winery. I'm air quoting that because you don't even need to have a physical space, just you know some articles of incorporation and some TTB filings. And therefore, that is suddenly your wine. And, and these wine clubs that are promoting this healthy, all fit, et cetera, when you actually look in and like, oh, we're so transparent, we tell you everything. No, you really don't. Sometimes you don't even know what the grapes are. Sometimes you don't know what the region is. You know where it's produced and bottled, but you don't know what's actually in the bottle. One of those examples of a wine club that is marketing clean wine, they were able to sell, I think for a premium, in fact, for what the grape was, like some very obscure grapes. Like, I mean, Peter and I drink a lot of wine and we taste a lot of wine blind. And for for us to run across a French grape that we've never heard of, and we had to like Google and still re- really sure where it was from, it was like, okay, but they're still able to like sell this for $15, $20, which is not inexpensive, but not a ton of money. But it was a grape that you'd never heard of in a region you've never heard of and a producer you've never heard of, but they were able to market that as a clean wine and therefore create a space for that. It's in some ways it's genius because if you didn't have that hook, it'd be very hard to like get an entry point for something like that. No, you you touched on it. That's the only reason you're getting entry point for something like that. Because if it's some obscure grape that nobody's, if it's, you know, Folle Blanche from uh, somewhere in the southwest of France in an appellation that nobody's ever heard of, then yeah, they're probably not going to go for it. But if it's a clean wine, suddenly, oh yeah, I'm going to go for it. And I want to be clear, like I'm not disparaging that at all. Like, first of all, God love them for figuring out how to tell something that doesn't have consumer demand, right? Business is all about creating demand. So I I don't have an issue with that. I have an issue with them manipulating the consumer to believe that this is somehow something better. Now, I will say this. If that $15 or $20 bottle of obscure, unknown grape from obscure, unknown region is delicious and worth it to you at $15 to $20, which is 3 to $4 a glass if you divide by five, then I've got no problem with that whatsoever. Wine is about discovery. And especially we're talking about millennials and Gen Z. They love that discovery portion. So if what makes them happy is discovering this wine and they think this $20 wine is worth $20, I'm all for it. However, if they think, well, I don't really love this, but it's clean, it's healthy for me, therefore I'll drink it over something else, that's where I have the issue. 
I guess there's a lot of parallels to the regular or the industrial food industry as well, where a lot of people are saying that those mass manufactured industrial products aren't good for you or, or healthy and get my natural or locally made or whatnot thing, and that's better. And it's hard as a consumer to piece those apart. And at least for those types of food goods, which even in drinks include things like Velcrin, which theoretically, everything you said is true, but theoretically becomes, I think, CO2 and water after it settles in, but is also like what they use for Gatorade, right? Which is like a massive product and, and other sports drinks. And so I think those healthy people would be like, I don't drink those types of drinks either, right? I drink my natural apple cider vinegar and water, weird concoction thing that tastes terrible. But, <laughs> but those people have made like quite a big industry out of it. How big do you think the clean wine people have made this part of the market? I wish I had financial statistics to really answer your question properly. I think the healthy lifestyle movement self-created the clean wine category. There's one particular worst offender of this. I actually once got in a fight with them on Facebook, so now I get their advertisements all the time. It's really annoying. I, I once caved. There might have been some wine involved in my night. And um, we're probably going to talk about this in a minute, but it was the ad that you've all seen that has a glass filled with sugar and saying like, oh, it's permissible to add sugar, but we don't do that, implying that everybody else does, which they don't. Mm. And uh, I replied to them, I was like, why don't you market your wines on quality if there is any, rather than manipulating people into thinking there's something that they're not. And now I get those ads all the time, all the time. But that particular offender, and I won't name the name, but they're named after non-wet agricultural practices. They say that they're the world's only clean natural wine club. That doesn't mean anything. Clean, that's not a thing. There's no definition to that. So I could say I'm wearing the world's only Sharpie black sunset colored hoodie right now. Well, that's great. I just made up a non-existent color. So technically I have a hundred percent of the Sharpie black sunset that exists in the world. Yeah, that's true, but I just made it up. It doesn't mean anything. So I have a real big issue with that whole concept. So, I mean, natural wines seems like it's here to stay. There's whole wine stores dedicated to natural wine. I am curious at the highest level, do you think that wineries are able to get a premium if their wine is deemed or qualified as clean wine or marketed, I guess I should say, as clean wine? Do you think they can get a premium? And do you think that there's going to start to be outside of wine clubs, actually like retailers that focus in on this area? I mean, New York City is probably going to be the first place to see them. <laughs> yeah, well, you called that one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They're able to get a premium. But the premium isn't that they charge $25 for a $20 bottle. The premium is that their $20 bottle isn't very good, but you accept it because it's not you. You have sophisticated palates, but consumers accept it because it's clean. Therefore, this is what I'm supposed to like. I want to be, you know, since you mentioned natural wine, I think it's worth making the distinction. I do not think natural wines are bad as a concept. However, I think natural wines are bad as a category. Nature doesn't make wine, nature makes vinegar. Grapes plus nature equals vinegar. Humans make wine. So the idea that you could just put some grapes in a vessel and then put them in a bottle with no preservative, i.e. sulfites or sulfur dioxide, is completely irresponsible. Best case scenario, you'll get something worth drinking, but more often than not, you won't. You'll get something with any number of flaws or no consistency or no ability to stay and last. So dogmatically natural wine, I have a particularly strong disdain for that being said, wines made naturally is a whole different thing. Some of my favorite wines in the world could classify as natural wine, but they don't hook on this is natural wine. They make the wine as naturally as possible, but they hook on this is the best wine we can make. 
So I think it's important to make that distinction, even though we're talking about clean wine, because a lot of people sort of juxtapose those two terms. So natural wine is not a bad thing if it's wine made naturally, but it's wine that's made, comma, naturally. If it is natural, comma, wine, and the focus is on natural, that's where I get into a bit of a concern about, is this going to be good? Is this going to be consistent? And frankly, like, what does it say about a producer that's not willing to protect your investment in their bottle to make sure that bottle one, bottle two, and bottle three all taste the same, or that they won't spoil or, or turn? And not to give New York the rough end of the stick, because there's plenty of other markets that do this, but I've been to a particular natural wine bar in New York where like, I struggled to find something palatable. And I went under the radar. I did not tell them I was a sommelier. I didn't give no indication that I know anything about wine. I just wanted to like feel what their experience was like for the average consumer. And it was impossible to find something worth drinking. And I am not that picky or particular. Everything was flawed. There was excessive VA, mercaptans, issues with all sorts of things, mousy and foxy and all sorts of types of bread and not TCA, but like there are all sorts of other anisoles like bromanisole. We won't even talk about TBA and dibromanisole and all that stuff, which doesn't make it cork, but it gives it weird other feelings. And it was just like, I can't enjoy any one of these wines because all they cared about was they're natural, not these are good wines. So there's definitely a point of distinction there, but some of the world's best wines are made naturally. Got no problem with that. It's the clean, natural movement that's causing the increased layers of confusion. And again, Rob, you touched on this earlier. The term natural implies that anything that is not deemed natural is unnatural. And that is just not the case. And so what segment of the wine consumer are the clean wine folks going after? Because if it is the grocery store buyer, are their comparisons more accurate since that's where a lot of the industrial wines are being sold? I think the segment that they're targeting is the naive consumer, the person who either likes wine but doesn't know much about it or is trying to like wine and wants to be trendy. I think those are the two people they're targeting because the people that know wine scoff and disdain at that. I'm in a Facebook wine group with like 9,000 wine professionals and we routinely jest at and are very impolite to a number of these brands, these wine clubs, some of these industrial brands and all that stuff because we're in the know. And that's not that we're being snobby. It's that like we see through the charade. We've paid attention to the man behind the curtain. So I think what they're targeting are people that like wine and think I'm supposed to like this. Even if I don't like it, there's something wrong with me if I don't because this is what I'm supposed to like. So it's a naivete and ignorance either based on inexperience or based on a lack of confidence to like what you like and dislike what you dislike. And everything we've talked about in terms of the clean wine, natural wine, they're maybe considered luxury from a Nielsen IRI perspective, but on the lower end of the scale of the you know wine, are there fine wines that are clean wine promoters? Um, great question that I don't know the answer to, but I can tell you this. By definition... Domaine de la Romani Conti would count as natural wine. Comte Georges de Vogue would count as natural wine. Thierry Germain counts as natural wine. Nicolas Jolie counts as natural wine. I can name Colin from Australia counts as natural wine. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on with these major, super expensive, high-end, worthwhile brands, but they're not marketing that they're natural or clean. They're marketing that they're really, or they're not even marketing for most of these. They're just making really great wines. Thibaut Liget Bel Air, like $600 for a bottle of his Richborg is a scream of a deal. That is by definition natural wine, but Thibaut will never say that's natural wine, but it happens to be made naturally. And I would say by definition, it's clean because there are no chemicals, no additives, no sawdust or wood chips or staves in place of barrels, no Valkyrie, no Mega Purple, no spinning cone, no reverse osmosis, no any of a number of other things that you can put in there. So by definition, that's natural wine, but that is not what people think of when they think of natural wine. So 
who's been promoting the clean wine trend outside of these actual companies? Is there something behind the scenes that is happening? Most of the celebrity brands are hooking into this now. The newer celebrity brands. And I want to be clear, there are a number of celebrity brands where the celebs are involved in the winemaking. They're involved in the tasting. They have wine knowledge. You want to be impressed with Dwayne Wade? Forget his skills on the court. You should hear him talk about winemaking. Same with Amari Stoudemire, speaking of basketball celebrities making wine. Maynard Keynes, the front man for Tool. He's making wines from Arizona that are amazing. And I almost dare say would technically count as natural wines. I don't actually know what the production processes are. But my God, he knows his stuff when it comes to wine. So like, I'm not disparaging celebrity brands. And I'm also not disparaging celebrities from finding more ways to get paid. You work so hard to become a celeb, get paid on your name. Like, There's nothing wrong with that. But I have found that many of the current or new entry celebrity brands, and we know some of the ones I'm talking about, even though I won't say their names, are purporting to be this healthy, natural, clean, good for you product. And the reality is it's indescript, non-disclosed bulk juice that they probably had nothing to do with the production of. And they're just putting it out there saying, oh, it's clean and natural, so buy it. I mean, I'll list one just to give an example. So Cameron Diaz, who has a clean wine brand called Aveline, you know, have given endorsements to give credibility to this movement. I remember when it first came out that there was a huge uproar in the wine community because, again, this kind of obscuring transparency. You couldn't even, you didn't even know what grape varieties were included in it. Due to response from the wine community, they've then since added some more transparency to their things. But she's a great example of someone like an A-list celebrity who has put her name on top of this movement and, and helping drive some of that. I'm curious on, but it's clear that there's some influence from the wine community about trying to bring back that transparency that they're claiming that they're giving to the consumers, but actually not giving them. So that was the one I was thinking of, but I didn't want to name. They were the worst offender. When I wrote that article and did the research, I went to their website and tried to, oh, we're so transparent. We tell you everything. You want to see a transparent wine? Look at Ridge. Look at their website. Look at their bottles. I mean, they tell you every single thing that's in that bottle. They tell you everything about like what vineyard, what block, what parcel, when it was harvested. You want it. They've almost gone as far as naming every single vine. Oh, this bottle has like Harry, Jess, Sophia, and Dave's grapes in it. Like, I mean, I'm being hyperbolic, but like you want transparency, there's transparency, but they're not marketing on that. They're marketing on, I make really great quality wines. Aveline, as you mentioned, was marketing on Cameron Diaz is a celebrity, therefore buy her wine. And I have to say, I think she's a fantastic actor and I'm all for everything she does outside of the wine space. But I had a real big problem with that brand because, oh, we're so transparent. You know what it was? It wasn't even that they were saying that they were transparent. They were basically claiming that nobody else is and they are. But then when you actually looked, you didn't know, as you mentioned, you didn't know the grapes. You didn't really know the regions. You knew the country made from organically grown grapes from Spain. Okay, Spain produces hundreds of different grapes. Spain has 60 or 70 different appellations. So can you tell me more? You're so transparent. I don't even get to know where they were grown. That's absurd. So maybe they've made steps in the right direction, but steps in the right direction after public backlash is not the same as starting in the right direction in the beginning. So maybe they are less obscuring, but I would not say that they are transparent. They might be more transparent than they claim to be when they launch. But, and again, listen, if you're listening and you like Avaline wines and you want to spend however much they cost, live your truth, friends, drink them. I've never had the wine, so I can't say if they're worth it for the price point or not. My issue is how they're marketed, not are they worth the quality. So let's go on a little tangent here because I'm a huge fan of Ridge Wines in general. I love their labels and the fact that they label everything. They're rare though. So what can the wine industry do to combat this nonsense? What can they do to actually show, hey, we're not, it's not binary, it's a spectrum, and here's what's in our wine. Because the average producer, 
is not doing what Ridge does and, and actually label everything that goes into their wines. And so what is your recommendation for wine producers to help combat this nonsense? Be like Ridge. They're the benchmark. They're the trendsetter. The thing is, where it gets problematic is that the average consumer doesn't understand. Listen, if this were easy, sommeliers wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't be talking to you now because I wouldn't have a career, right, if it were easy. So the average consumer doesn't understand the complexity of wine, how it's made, what goes into it, what these chemicals, whether natural or artificial, do for better or for worse. Just because it's an artificial chemical doesn't mean it's bad for you. There are so many natural chemicals that are far worse for you than their artificial counterparts. But that's another thing that people fully misunderstand. Natural flavors versus artificial flavors. Many of the artificial flavors are much better for you than the natural flavors. By the way, if you're vegan, good luck eating anything that's artificially red because that's usually powdered beetle. So if you're vegan, then artificial red is much better for you than natural red. And like every strawberry ice cream that's commercially produced uses this powder. So like there's an example where that's not better for you from a health or holistic reason. It's just a matter of your personal preferences. But this whole idea that wines have to be this completely transparent thing, I don't think is correct. And the reason for that is most people don't understand what to do with that information and will misconstrue what it means. So if a wine, for instance, has gone through reverse osmosis, yes, that is a process of manipulation. But if you have an issue with that, you don't get to drink Lafitte Rothschild, Latour, Mouton, Petrus. Again, you're not to fact check me on this, but I'm pretty sure they all do that. And those are all great wines, and they're all wines that you and I would probably be more than happy to drink as long as someone else was paying the bill. Does that make them bad? No. But if a consumer sees, oh, this wine went through reverse osmosis, they're like, whoa, that sounds like a chemical manipulative process, and that's bad, and I can't drink it. So the problem is not transparency. It's what happens when you put information that people don't understand into the hands of people who don't understand it. And if you want the perfect example of that, look no further than vaccines and how the American population has responded to vaccines, even though everybody who is an anti-vaxxer has probably been inoculated for diphtheria, tetanus, rabies, hep C, smallpox, yeah, all those things, right? But yet suddenly vaccines are terrible. In fact, a perfect example of this was, this might be the most high-level trolling I've ever seen in my life. It was somebody posted on Facebook, this is like, I wish I would have saved it like a year or half a year ago. So anti-vaxxers, I truly want to know which of these chemicals you have issues for. This is the chemical formulary for a vaccine. And it was just like 70 lines of all sorts of dipotassahydromonothacolide or whatever. I'm making stuff up, right? Which is the thing? And all of these antivaxxers, like all of them, all these things are bad for you. And after like two days of thousands of responses, he finally posted, this is the chemical composition of a Granny Smith apple. So <laughs> you're so concerned with these chemicals. This is like you put this into a, a gas chromatograph or whatever. And these are the chemical compounds, the natural compounds. But you're so misconstrued that you just see words that sound like chemicals that you don't understand. You think it's bad for you. That was beautiful trolling and I'm all for it. Get your vaccines, friends. But moreover, you give that information to people who don't understand what these things do and don't mean and you create the same situation. You'll have the clean wine version of anti-vaxxers. So what do consumers need to know and how do they figure out then when they're choosing wines, how to differentiate what's real from a marketing and a, the wine perspective versus what you called snake oil in the article? I wish I knew the answer to that. I think it's be aware, be willing to question terms that sound great. Something just came to mind. So I am loyalist to American Airlines, not because I particularly love them, but because they service the routes I've been flying for a long time. And now that I have status, I'm not going to give that up. They'll stab me if you try to take away my status, right? And a long time ago, I got an American Airlines credit card. And it's called the American Citibank Platinum World Elite Limited Edition Exclusive 
card. It's like, wh- and I'm looking at the name of this card and that's like their, all their branding and stuff. I'm like, platinum exclusive world elite. Like it's just a freaking credit card, like easy there. But it's got all these terms that make you sound like, ooh, I'm in this special club. Like this is super and special and exclusive and I'm a world elite platinum holder. And at the end of the day, it was just a credit card, right? So like there's an example of if you are of the mentality and personality where you question stuff like that or moreover, not even question it, just see through it and be like, okay, cool, it's just a credit card. Then all this transparency about how a wine is made and what's in it and what processes are used are great. But if you're excited prior to listening to this, if you got excited about clean wine for the sake of that or natural wine for the sake of that, then more transparent labeling is probably going to have a negative effect on you. It's probably going to take you in the wrong direction. What I heard was go find a good wine retailer and build a relationship with them like you have with American Airlines and let them guide you on your journey through wine as opposed to listening to a Facebook ad or an Instagram story that is trying to sell you on the basis of fear. 100%. I mean, remember this. Everyone is listening. I need you to remember this. Advertisements have one purpose and one purpose only, to get you to spend money. Their purpose is not to give you good information. Their purpose is not to give you an edge. Their purpose is not to teach you anything. Their purpose is clearly to get you to purchase their product, period, full stop. That doesn't mean you can't learn things along the way. That doesn't mean they can't be beneficial. That doesn't mean they can't provide valuable information. But if you remember the root core of any advertisement is we want your money because think about how much advertisements cost. If you don't, do yourselves a favor, go open Facebook, create a sponsored post and say you want to get a million impressions in a week and see how much that will cost you. So advertising has a cost and they spend that money because they can make that money back at an exponential rate that makes that expenditure worthwhile. So if you remember that anything you're seeing that is sponsor content in any way, shape, or form, the purpose of that is only to get your money. Maybe you can take with a little grain of salt or even just a purposeful level of analytical introspection that these words maybe don't have definition or they're maybe couching it in such a way that's supposed to tug at your emotions or excite you to make a transactional decision. So just remember that when you see these things marketed the way you see them marketed. Ads are there to make sales. Got it. So let's end on a more positive note. I'm curious on what was the most memorable wine you've drank in the last year and who was it with? Oh, I mean, that's easy. It's every wine I drank at my wedding. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> oh, you're, that's right. You recently got seven. married. Yeah. Congratulations. 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 Thank you very much. August 22nd, 2021, instead of October of 2020. Thanks, COVID. So we got married in Portugal. And uh, we basically had a short list of all the most insane unicorn wines of Portugal that you can get. So much so that some of our Portuguese guests were like, how did you get these wines? We're like, yeah, I know some people. So yeah, that was probably the most memorable and impactful wines that I've had in a while. But that's because of the circumstance. I mean, they're great wines, but it's also the circumstance, obviously. I mean, I don't think anything tastes better than the wine you drink on your wedding day. Any particular highlights? Was it Barcavella or? Oh, look at you with your Portuguese wine knowledge. Can I tell you, I have never had Barcavella. I have, however, interacted with Luis Sotomayor, the winemaker for Barcavella, and he's basically the winemaker for all the Sogrip wines, like Casa Ferrarina and Sandemans Porto and all that stuff. In fact, even though I hate talking about myself, Segway, I was in Portugal in May as an international judge for the Wines of Portugal Challenge, where Portuguese wineries submit their wines for every category, and they have about 150 judges, of which about 40 of them are international. So Luis Sotomayor, the winemaker for Barcavella, was the moderator for one of my days is like four days of intensive wine tasting, like eight in the morning till 4 p.m. It's, it's intense. And he was our moderator and we were chatting. And when I told him I'd never had Barcavela, he gave me this look like, that sucks, but I understand. So no, it wasn't Barcavela. It was, uh, so some of my favorite wines that we served at the wedding were Luis Siabra, 
uh, the the Shisto. Shisto crew Bronco out of Magnum. We did uh, Antonio Massanita's Fita Preta, the Trincadaira, the one with the gold label, which you can't really get in the U.S. Also, his Fita Preta Baga Ao Sol, which is you can get in the U.S., but they only I think like ten six packs come to the country or something insane. Maybe it's more. I'm, it's probably like a hundred six packs, but it feels like only ten come. We also uh, had my wife's birth year from Cav Sao Joao, a white wine from her birth year, nineteen eighty eight which was uh, basically their Bronco, which is mostly a Rinto, but with uh, some other stuff thrown in there. Yeah. Oh, and then lots of Madeira. We did the four Vinos Generosos of Portugal, the four fortified wines of Portugal. So we had Ruby and Tawny Port. We had Madeira. We had Moscatel de Setubal. And then we had Carcavelos uh, from her birth year, 1988, which I personally bottled three years before in Portugal from that winery. Like I physically chose that barrel put the bottles on the line, fill them, put the corks in. Like, so it was kind of cool. Awesome. That sounds nice. uh, sounds like a special day for sure. sure was. Well, Eric, we want to thank you for joining us and talking about clean wine. And hopefully uh, some of our listeners understand that uh, this segment a little bit better and what's driving it in the U.S. market. You know, some people are, are less familiar with it because they're not in the U.S. So it's always great to talk about it, especially uh, on the heels of your article in the tasting panel. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. By the way, we barely scratched the surface. We could have probably gone another two hours on clean wine. And uh, when you're ready, we'll talk sulfites and how misunderstood those things are. So you just let me know. Awesome. Sounds like a future episode. Perfect. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, Cheers. cheers.